You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. We also put the dick in Richard. Who? Any of them. Just just a Richard? Any Richard. The third. Dick the third. Okay. I'm RJ. Three dick. You're RJ three dicks? No, Richard the third. Just three dick. Okay. I thought you were just making like a a very specific proclamation there. No. I was going to say, I don't know where you were hiding the other two, but. I don't know. I got four like every normal male. (laughs) Good to know. Good to put that out there. Let people know. We um we kind of ended up taking a unplanned hiatus for a bit there, and I I tried to to write and rewrite this to make it funny because I didn't want to put a fucking bummer at the very top of the show. But fuck it, let's pull this bandaid off quick. All good things in life must eventually end, especially if the alternative is to keep them trucking along for an indeterminate time un- until they become not good. You couldn't even Walking Dead still on. I was literally just about to say, like, The Walking Dead, so... Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> or, or, good things don't have to end. Or, or The Rolling Stones, or... LeBron James's dominance in the NBA. <laughs> Age is like, fine wine. Tom Tom. Don't add us. That is to say that, oh no, the class is coming to an end. Yeah, no, I tried to make a joke anyway. Y- yep, I know, Pravi. It's, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> Uh, and I also know that we just made the whole big to-do about hitting four years. I know, probably. I'm very sad, too. And I guess that's kind of part of it. Uh, retrospectives, taking stock, that whole thing. Pravi, you just, you gotta hold it together. <laughs> I will quickly add, before he butts in, that this is my decision, and that RJ wants to make it clear that he's perfectly willing to ride this train forever. Yeah, man. I mean, good things don't have to come to an end. <laughs> But also, I do literally everything else apart from the words that come out of your mouth, so. That's the best part. <laughs> but fear not, you haven't heard the end of our dipshittery just yet. This is uh, episode 97 and figured we may as well go out on a high note at the big 100. In the meantime, we invite you listeners for our last hurrah to send us messages in written or hell, even audio form. Fuck it, why not? Tell us your favorite Ono Lit Class episodes, jokes, moments, running gags, financial advice. Sure. Send it over to onolitclass at gmail.com or over social media at onolitclasspod on Twitter or on Facebook or Tumblr, and we'll read and or play our favorites on the final episode. And I'll probably cry. I'm a big fucking baby. But for now, we still got a show to do. And this week is covering a long-requested author. Donald Trump. Not requested. Donald Trump. (laughs) Not requested by any of you. John Barron. But by RJ. And since this author has now become controversial within the current pop cultural landscape... Donald Trump. Or at least he was a couple weeks ago. Donald Trump. Which is good enough for me. I figured we'd finally cave and talk about Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Dr. Seuss. Dr. Trump. (laughs) Oh, you're not going to correct me? 
I literally had oh, space we'll here. Oh, we'll get there. I mean, you're wrong. I, I, I literally had set up a space here for you to correct me. <laughs> so yeah, no, we'll get there, but you're wrong. For you to say, no, no, it's Dr. Soys. Yes, we'll get there. Uh, it's two episodes in a row, I guess, where you, you might have been fucking up an author's name for years and not realizing it, except pretty much everyone has just decided that they're okay with this one. Even the good doctor himself during his lifetime was like, eh, fuck it. I've lost this battle. Seuss it is. Ah, America. Land of the brave. Home of the free. Country of the fuck you. Your name is hard and we don't care. I know, Pravi. We just have to power through. Anyway, probably the most renowned children's book author of all time. That feels fair to say. The unfortunate recipient of some hilariously unself-aware film adaptations. And recently claimed by the alt-right, I guess. Yeah, we'll unpack that one in a bit. Many is the child whose first red words were about counting one or two red or blue fish, hopping on pop, or a cat with a big funny hat on his head and dark chaos in his heart. During his lifetime, he wrote over 60 children's books when not doing animation ads and political cartoons that have sold over 600 million copies and been translated into 20 different languages and one of the most uncomfortably horny Tumblr memes ever. But before we can get into that, RJ, Tip. will you tell us about the man behind Green Eggs and Ham? Will you tell us on a mat? Will you do it with a bat? Will you tell us with some mice? Will you give financial advice? Will you tell us all the same? And will you give him a dumb nickname? Theodore Soyce Gazel was born March 2nd, 1904 and died September 24th, 1991. And yes, I need to address this from the very beginning. It's Zoyce. Teddy's friend Alexander Liang even made a rhyme to teach everyone the right way to pronounce Teddy's name. Quote, You're wrong as the deuce, and you shouldn't rejoice if you're calling him Seuss. He pronounces it Zoyce. How did you fuck up the rhyme meter that bad? Like, jeez. <laughs> what do you mean? The meter? Yeah, like the rhythm. I don't care about the like, rhythm. Like, how, like it's... You're wrong as the deuce, and you shouldn't rejoice if you're calling him Seuss. He pronounces it Zeus. Like, there's clearly a sing-song here, and you just, you just, you care. killed it dead. No, I'm not in it for that. I'm in it for the pronunciation of rhymes with rejoice, people. And Seuss don't do that. Yes, but also, like, you you're have to, you have to, you, you have to take into, I know deuce is funny. Um, you, That's a poop. Yeah, it is a poop. But, like, you have to take into account also the fact that everyone knows Seuss. So, I shall continue. Universal Studios, even, they're just like, yeah, it's fucking Seuss land or whatever. Like, even Dr. Stephen the Man was just like, well, I guess it rhymes with, like, fucking Mother Goose, so I guess that's a good association, whatever. So, Zoys is the way the family pronounced the name. It's the way Teddy pronounced the name. But Americans, being Americans, decided it's Seuss. And Seuss it has been and will likely always be. This is the ultimate, well, actually, meme brought to life. It is Zoyce. But if that is how you decide to refer to the man, you come off as a bit of a dick. Now, <laughs> which you have been doing. I'm okay with that and I'm happy to correct people. But everyone must look at their own life and decide just how much of a dick they want to be. You want to be the biggest. Dude. Is this the well actually hill you want to die on? Because if you drop a Dr. Zoyce, nearly everyone will look at you like you're a big old plate 
of green eggs and ham. With that out of the way, Teddy was born and raised in Springfield, Massachusetts. One of the many cities that little show named The Simpsons may have been based in. Although I've always held out they were actually in Kentucky. I always figured it was Springfield, Illinois. Teddy's the son of Henrietta Seuss and Theodore Robert Gazel. So the calculation done here was dad's first name plus mom's maiden name plus dad's last name and boom, you got a kid's name all right. Daddy Teddy managed a family. Wait, I left the word out there. They managed a family. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy managed a family until prohibition. (laughs) (laughs) Then what happened? Daddy Teddy managed a family brewery until it was closed because of prohibition. Thanks, big government. Taking away jobs and alcohol. You gotta wonder how that was a popular political platform. Daddy, you gotta think of the children. Lucky for the Gazel family, Daddy Teddy was appointed to supervise Springfield's public park system by the mayor. Unfounded speculation alert. Maybe he was slipping some of that unsold hooch to the mayor. Greasing the old sobriety wheel, so to speak. I'm so glad for you at the end of that you said maybe he was slipping some of that. It was hooch. Because I was like, wait, where the fuck is this going? That was prohibition. What else would he be slipping? I don't know. When you start saying maybe he was slipping some of that blank to the mayor. Like, hooch is not typically what I expect to come ah. next. Teddy grew up on Fairfield Street, which was just a couple blocks over from the now infamous Mulberry Street. Who knows what you might see on Mulberry Street. When Teddy was 10, World War I broke out. And the Gazels, having the last name Gazel, and first names like Theodore, it was pretty easy for their neighbors to figure out they were German, and they faced prejudice in their community. During the war, Teddy decided to help out the war effort and make it clear he was a good American boy by selling war bonds. He was very good at it. In fact, he was so good, he was invited to the White House to be presented with an award by another Teddy, Roosevelt. Ooh. So here's the scene. Theater of the mind. There were ten boys, including Teddy, there to receive awards. Well, during the award ceremony, Roosevelt found that he had only nine medals to give. Seems like a pretty big fuck-up. And when he got to our Teddy, standing at the end of the line... He turned to the crowd and asked, What's this boy doing here? Which got a roar of laughter from the crowd. What the fuck, Teddy Roosevelt, you dick? Jokes were easier back then. But being the butt of the joke made by a president, our Teddy was very embarrassed and self-conscious. Biographers have written that for the rest of his life, Teddy suffered from acute stage fright and sometimes skipped speaking engagements altogether. And this episode was at least partially to blame. Yeah, getting fucking dunked on by the president who's trying to like hide the fact that like they didn't bring enough fucking medals for this kid who helped sell war bonds. Yeah, what's this jerk doing? <laughs> what a prick. Teddy on Teddy crying. Seriously. One thing that Teddy loved as a child was the zoo. It was a family affair. Daddy Teddy, Mommy Teddy, and sister Marnie would go as a group. One other thing always in attendance at the zoo was Teddy's sketch pad, as he loved to draw the animals. His mother became his, quote, accomplice in crime and encouraged Teddy to draw animal caricatures on the plaster walls of his bedroom. 
You hear that, parents, who yell at their kids for drawing on the walls? You are killing their Dr. Zeus potential. There you go. It's like post-birth abortion in a way. Oh my god! To their self-esteem and creativity. <laughs> killing it. That's going to be relevant later. I hate that that's going to be relevant later. Oh, that's right. He's anti-abortion. No, he's not. Yeah, GOP told me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm remembering now. Using his connections with the city, Daddy Teddy would get the bills, horns, and antlers of the zoo animals that had met their timely demise to become parts of what became a strange collection of taxidermied fantastical animals more closely resembling characters from the famed Dr. Seuss books than anything in the wild. Huh. Yeah. His family said Teddy exhibited genuine concern for others, was naturally cheerful, and had a random wit. You know, with the zany taxidermied animals and whatnot. Mm. To them, he was a, quote, personality to be encouraged. And so they helped him carry down the path that he chose for himself. To me, it sounds like they were enabling a young Sheldon, which airs Sundays on your local CBS, America's most watched network. After high school, Teddy went off to Dartmouth College, home of the Big Green, based in Hanover, New Hampshire. The school motto is, a voice crying out in the wilderness, which is something. What the fuck? <laughs> Whose voice? What the fuck? Why is it crying? A mystery lost to time. That's the school's motto. Yeah. A voice crying out in the wilderness. The Big Green. That makes it sound like they're going to fucking murder, like they're, they're hunting you. While at Dartmouth, he joined the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity, which has notable members like Andy Richter. Yes, that Andy Richter. Who? Andy Richter. Who? Mm. Our audience will know who Andy Richter is. I believe in them. Nothing. Nothing? Not a damn thing. He had his own show, but he's a Conan O'Brien sidekick. That's not the robot. Oh. Uh, what the fuck are our audience going to know who he is? I believe in them. Is he a voice crying out in the wilderness? He might have been. While there, he also began to write for the humor magazine known as Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern. It is affectionately known as The Jacko. Teddy eventually rose to the rank of chief and editor of The Jacko. It was during his time with The Jacko that he adopted the pen name Seuss. And it was less a choice and more forced on him. You see, he was caught drinking gin with nine friends in his room, which is a lot of friends to have in one room. <laughs> As luck would have it at the time, the possession and consumption of alcohol was illegal under prohibition laws, which were in place from 1920 to 1933. Thirteen years we let those people win. As a result of this infraction, the dean forced Teddy to give up all extracurricular activities, including the jack-o'-lantern. Apparently, by changing your pen name, no one knows who you are, and no one ratted Teddy out, and so Seuss was born. Huh. Yeah. They don't know who's running these things if you just change the name. Not not too bright over there at Dartmouth. No, they never went. Who's the Seuss guy? <laughs> it can't possibly be the guy who has this as a middle name. Nah. Of course, becoming Seuss was only half the battle. After graduating from Dartmouth, he was 21. Teddy went overseas to Lincoln College, which is part of Oxford, to earn a Doctor of Philosophy in English Literature. At least that was the plan. While at Lincoln College, he met Helen Palmer, his future wife, who convinced him being a literature professor is way lame and that he should drop out and pursue a career in drawing instead. She said of Teddy's work at the time, quote, Ted's notebooks were always filled with these fabulous animals. So I set to work diverting him. 
He was a man who could draw such pictures. He should be earning a living doing that. Well, she was successful in diverting him, getting him to drop out before he earned a degree, and he moved back to the good old U.S. of A., specifically back to Springfield, in 1927, just two years later when he was 23. He immediately began submitting writings and drawings to magazines, book publishers, and advertising agencies. After five months of querying everyone who would listen, his first naturally published cartoon appeared in the July 16, 1927 issue of the Saturday Evening Post. He was paid $25, and this convinced him that he was ready for the big time. And he moved to New York City. Ooh, la-di-da. Can you imagine moving to New York after making a $25 sale? <laughs> Times were different back then. Well, how much would that be in today money? Megan, how much do you got to multiply $25 from that you would have to go, you know what, this is a good move to make <laughs> to New York City? I mean, even if you yeah, multiply yeah, it by a thousand, Megan, you had $25,000 in your pocket. Are you moving to New York? $25,000. If I only had for to query, sale? if I only had to query for five months and they're like, hey, here's 25 grand, kiddo. You gotta be a star. And I was 23. Yeah, I'd probably be fucking stupid. They didn't say you had to move. He decided to move on his own. Well, that's a, no, 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 I'm saying uh, I think I'd be stupid enough to do it. Yeah. yeah. On October 22nd, 1927, when he was 23 and she was 29. Teddy and Helen were married. Wow. She's 29? Yeah, six years older than him. I don't trust this woman. Mm. Fucking oh. manipulating this this kid. Yeah, drop out of college. Go out, draw the funny pictures. You gotta be a star. Make kid. some money. Make me $25. Move me to New York City. <laughs> Show me the world. Take me to the US. She just wanted a green card. I don't know that. Boy, you gotta be a star. <laughs> I don't know. She might have been American beforehand. Too. Yeah. Helen Palmer? Go either way. Oh, you didn't? You, you no. Didn't know. Oh, why would you? A month later, Teddy's first work, signed Dr. Seuss, or Dr. Seuss, was published in the magazine, Judge. So if you're married out there, I give you permission to anoint yourself a doctor. Just like Dr. Seuss. Good enough for him, it's good enough for you, gentlemen. Just fucking do it. Who's going to stop you? I guess women could do it too, but they don't have the precedent, you know? I don't know. What do you think? Should it be open to everybody? If you're married, you're a doctor? Yeah. Sure? All right. Just fucking do it. So there you go, married folk. Everyone who's married is a doctor. Yeah. Who's, Sight who's, Dr. who's gonna stop you? <laughs> the money Teddy earned from his advertising work and magazine submissions made him wealthier than even his most successful Dartmouth classmates. You see, kids, the moral of the story is, if you sell your soul, you might get rich. <laughs> Listen to that older woman telling you to drop out of college and drop. With the income, Teddy and Helen moved up in social stature, moved up in living arrangements, and it really just got better and better. The duo visited 30 countries together and lived their best lives. They did not have children, neither kept regular office hours, and they continued to have ample money. So really, when we were just shitting on him for moving to New York after making 25 bucks on a... It worked out. Yeah. <laughs> he bet on himself. He published his first book in 1931 at the age of 27. He used the pseudonym... Alexander A. Big Dong. A Bing Dong. Let me see before you just start saying words. A. Bing Dong. Abingdon? Abingdon. Abingdon? And the book was titled... I already looked it up. Why'd you look it up? I told you not I didn't do it on purpose. I was looking at a list of other things. It was the first one on there. And the book was titled Boners. It wasn't titled Boners. Boners. It wasn't just like the bo- It was not a one-word title. It was just like Boners. He didn't. T- he didn't just write a book called 
Boners. boners. Boners was such a hit. Two months later, he published more boners. <laughs> he then followed up four months later with still more boners. Shit. The next year, he published prize boners. You see, the earlier boners weren't prize winners. Anyway, it's boners, still boners, still more boners, and then prize boners. Okay, wait, maybe I wasn't looking at the right thing. Yeah, that's what they are. Did, did I just see, like, the collection, the Boners collection or <laughs> maybe. something? Maybe. It was, like, four different books that came out, like, in eight months of Boners, more Boners, still more Boners, <laughs> and prize Boners. Okay, I think I looked at the wrong thing. Um, by the way, Boners topped the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> so, if you never do, no, you got bested by Boners. together in a collection and it was no, no, titled no. differently it just had boners in the title no no Bo- it's boners more boners still more boners and prize boners those are them yeah see it just listed as the pocket book of boners which yeah. is still really funny <laughs> yes it compiles four separate yeah. books boners more boners still more boners and prize boners <laughs> you add them together you get a pocketful book of boners get a good any sort of context for that hey guys guys you want to see my boners boners old timey word for erections no like like jokes and and goof-em-ups and shit like big old batman's boners (laughs) now that makes absolutely no fucking sense without the context in 1936, on a cruise back from Europe... And away we go. <laughs> yeah, he was tripping again. He, he uses boner money. <laughs> in 19- My boners paid for this vacation! Yeah. And in 1936... I, mean, I don't know why Dr. Seuss sounds like fucking... I'm an, I'm an oil man. I'm a boner man, you see. Anyway, in 1936, on a cruise back from Europe, Teddy was taken by the rhythm of the ship's engines and was inspired to write the poem that became his first children's book and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. According to Teddy, the book was rejected by between 20 and 43 publishers. Unclear how many thought it was too racist. According to Teddy, he was walking home to burn the manuscript when a chance encounter with an old Dartmouth classmate led to its publication. Wow. There was a voice screaming. Don't burn that (laughs) manuscript. (laughs) As World War II began, Teddy turned to creating political cartoons. Over 400 during his first two years of doing so. Teddy's political cartoons, later published in Dr. Seuss Goes to War, denounced Hitler and Mussolini and were highly critical of non-interventionist, a.k.a. isolationist, most notably Charles Lindbergh, who opposed the U.S. entry into the war. They also included stereotypical depictions of Japanese people. Ain't anything like a war that can bring out the good old racism in a person, you know? Yep. In 1942, Teddy was all in on the war effort. He drew posters for the Treasury Department and the War Production Board. He then joined the Army as a captain and was the commander of the Animation Department of the 1st Motion Picture Unit of the U.S. Army Air Forces. Hey. One of the films he wrote, Our Job in Japan, which is supposedly sympathetic to Japanese people, was adapted into an Academy Award-winning film. 
After the war, Teddy moved to California and went back to writing children's books. Over the next decade, he wrote some of the heavy hitters, If I Ran the Zoo, Horton Hears a Who, If I Ran the Circus, The Cat in the Hat, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Green Eggs and Ham. Busy guy. In the 1950s, Life magazine published a report claiming school children were illiterate and not learning because their books were boring and they were spoiled brats who don't want to read but would rather listen to the radio. I never heard any similar reasoning before myself. Teddy was tasked to fix this. He was asked by publisher, I, don't, I actually don't know how to say this publisher's name, but it's Houghton Mifflin? What? It's the publisher. You've seen it before. Houghton Mifflin? Houghton I don't know. I have no idea. How is Houghton Mifflin? Those guys. By the publisher Houghton Mifflin. I don't know if it's To take the 250 most important words for first graders to know. You could have looked it up. And write a book with them using only those words. A book's kids, quote, can't put down. Keeps them on edge. They gotta know. It's a real page turner with these 250 words. The suspense. And he brought back the cat. In the hat. I mean, can you imagine a first grader doesn't know the words cat in the hat? Woof. No, I'm still, I'm all in on this. Fuck, I can't think of his name now. From There Will Be Blood. Daniel Plainview? Yeah, I'm, I'm all in on this Daniel Plainview interpretation I've got in my head. I'm just picturing him sitting there in front of like a crowd of people holding the cat in the hat. I'm a family man, you see. I write the cat in the hat. The children don't know what's going to happen when the cat comes. Their mother is away, you see. <laughs> Including Cat in the Hat, many of Teddy's heavy hitters still sell upwards of a half million copies annually today. In 1955, at 51, Teddy was awarded an honorary doctorate from Dartmouth. Not the real thing, but at least closer to it than he was before. Teddy joked that now he would have to sign Dr. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Dr. Professor Seuss. <laughs> Teddy and Helen never had any children. Teddy said of children, quote, You have them, I'll entertain them. Words to live by, my Yeah, friend. really. <laughs> Mood. Helen struggled with many illnesses later in life that put a strain on her and Teddy's public life. Specifically, in the late 1950s, she began to experience partial paralysis from Julian Barr syndrome. She never fully recovered. The center into a depressive state, furthering her depression, was Helen's suspicion that Teddy was having an affair with one of her close friends, Audrey Diamond. On October 23, 1967, Helen died by suicide. No. She wrote in her suicide note, in part, quote, I'm too old and too enmeshed in everything you do and are that I cannot conceive of life without you. My going will leave quite a rumor, but you can say I was overworked and overwrought. Your reputation with your friends and fans will not be harmed. Jesus. Teddy married Audrey Diamond, the, that close friend, less than eight months after Helen's suicide. So she was probably on to something. If he wasn't having that affair, <laughs> okay, he was totally having that affair. <laughs> I didn't know that about, about old Dr. Seuss. Fuck. <laughs> By the early 1970s, Teddy had published most of his best-known works, with the Lorax being published in 1971. In fact, after the Lorax, the best known of Teddy works that he published wasn't until one year before his death, the 1990 publication of All the Places You Will Go, which still remains a common gift for graduates from kindergartners all the way up through college. It's Oh the Places You'll Go. Oh, not all oh, the places? Oh, the, no, yo. <laughs> all right, well, Oh the Places You'll Go, not All the Places You Will Go. <laughs> yeah. 
You sure? Yes. All right. Go look at your no, Test me. I don't think I would have typed it that way. All right. Fuck <laughs> 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 are you on? <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yes, that Dr. Seuss classic. All the places you will go. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oxford Clubs. Because it's got a rhyme. Oh, the places you'll go. Well, you know, this seems to be a Bernstein Bears moment here. <laughs> because there's a lot of people on the internet, and they type it the same way. Well, you're still wrong. Am I, though? Yes. With the 1990 publication of Oh, the Places You Will Go. It, again, it's a fucking contraction. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. The 1990... <laughs> The 1990 publication, Oh, the Places. <laughs> You'll go. <laughs> Which remains a common gift for graduates from kindergartners all the way up through college. Teddy died of oral cancer when he was 87 on September 24th, 1991 at his home in La Jolla, California. His ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean, so there is a chance he is part of the great floating island of trash out there. That's not where I saw that going. It's poetic in a way, I guess. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Depends on your take. Among the honors bestowed upon Teddy include two Academy Awards, two Emmys, a Peabody Award, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal, the Inkpot Award, and a Pulitzer Prize. Additionally, he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Teddy has been in the Forbes list of the world's highest paid dead celebrities every year since 2001 when the list was first published. And yes, there have been Dr. Seuss stamps. The end. Yeah, a trash bin out there. There it is. Hey everybody, it's Megan and I'll just, uh, address the elephant in the room right now. RJ made a whole big deal out of how to properly pronounce Dr. Seuss and then proceeded to call him Theodore Geisel when it should be pronounced Theodore Geisel because he can't even be bothered to look up how to pronounce the man's actual last name. Yeah, no, I know that's not what you actually want to hear about. Uh, yeah. I don't know how much I can really cram into the interstitial space here or, or how much you really do want to hear about it, but yeah, oh no, lit class is ending. That's, that's a train. I could try to go down the, the list of reasons and cram them all in here, but the short version is just that, you know, it's, it's time. It's still a train. God, I bet you could still hear the fucking train too. Jesus Christ. Um... You'll still be able to hear my dumbass on Fun Fiction on the Load of Pure BS network uh, with Scotty. Uh, oh my god, really? Another train? Are you fucking kidding me? It's 2.30 in the morning. Are you, are you shitting my fucking ass? Okay, and um, I'm also part of another show that is about to launch that I'm very excited about, but I'm not like the 
soul like person doing you know 100% of the things on on those in fact I'm doing way 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 less of the things on those um I'm getting old I don't know it's just a lot rambling it's a lot of feelings if I talk about it too much I probably will get emotional and we, we can save that for later I'll probably talk more in each subsequent mid-roll but for now we got we got patrons to thank which yes I know that's its whole own awkward thing because yes obviously I do want to keep you know the hosting and everything active I want to keep the archive up so that everybody can still go back and like listen to episodes and things like that which does still cost money so I think I'm gonna try to figure out something with the patreon where I just maybe like just drop it to like a flat like three bucks or something people can just like dump in three dollars or something peruse all the bonus content that's sitting there you know just kick kick in for a month or something to help me cover uh hosting and uh keep the website and whatnot up i don't know it's a it's a thought in progress uh but in the meantime as the show does continue uh you know, our, our patrons have, are, have been, continue to be the most amazing, supportive, wonderful fucking people who we adore and have been able to help keep the show going. Oh god, it's already happening. Including our most recent patrons, who I guess now are just like, hmm, uh, JV Hampton Van Sant. Jordan, and FN Science Man. Thank you for... Oh, man. And that's another train. You are... What, what the... Where? Where? It is 20 to 3 a.m. Where? Thank you, FN Science Man. JV. Hey, hey JV. How's it going? Uh, you should listen to JV's audio drama, Birds of Prey Outcry. If you like Birds of Prey and you really like Black Canary, because they made a whole fucking very good audio drama surround. Oh, it's, it's fucking good. It's so fucking quality. It's so good. You should go listen to that. It's, ca- it's called Birds of Prey Outcry. Just, just go, go find it. It's, it's very findable. Um, and Jordan, one of our other new patrons. Has a YouTube channel, Don't Eat a Cow, Man, which is a really great name for a YouTube channel. They have a lot of subscribers. Um, YouTube.com slash C slash Don't Eat a Cow, Man. Um, they've got a lot of videos about Over the Garden Wall, which is a very good cartoon. And they talk about it a lot, and they're very good videos. And so you should go watch them. And enjoy those good videos. Did I did I do a good Jordan? I'm sorry, Jordan. You deserve better. <laughs> Go to Jordan's YouTube channel. Don't eat a cow, man. <laughs> Thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you guys for supporting us through everything. God knows we don't deserve it. <laughs> oh boy. Oh Jesus Christ. Please enjoy the rest of the Dr. Seuss.
All right then. Um, I I get I guess on to the books from there. So I'm a good dude, cat in the hat. We all know the cat in the hat, and and also there's really nothing juicy and weird there to sort of deconstruct. Like the cat is the id. The cat is chaos. Blah 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 blah. But it goes beyond that, Meg. <laughs> yeah. Because the parents are faceless. What the cat in the hat represents is what happens when authority has no face. In a power vacuum, you have anarchy. And anarchy is symbolized by cat in the hat. He might also have subconsciously been based on racial stereotypes of African-American minstrel characters, according to Philip Nell, author of Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature? But that would literally be its own episode. Like, this Philip Nell dude is... A, a Seuss scholar, and we are two dipshits with Wi-Fi, so we're just gonna let him have that one. We're gonna leave that one for Phil. He's got a whole blog. Um, instead, we'll start with something easy. The Sneeches. Published in 1961. Sneeches tells the story of the weird yellow bird. Yeah, well, pets. you gotta do a couple things. Like, it's 1961. Yeah. You gotta put in a CCR. What? Vietnam song. No, I'm not putting Turner, fucking Cleveland's clear water Bible. JFK was now president. <laughs> People were fighting for civil rights. We were going to land on the moon in eight years. <laughs> 1961. <laughs> So the Sneeches were going to Vietnam, I guess. Um. <laughs> JFK's brain was still in his head. The FBI didn't boil it out yet. Jesus fuck. So Sneeches, though, they're, they're these dumpy little bird people. And some of them have a green star on on their stomach. And, Not yellow? Um, no. Uh, They're yellow birds. Uh, the star uh, is green. All right, fine. Jesus. At the beginning of the story, the Sneeches that, that do got the stars are dicks to the Sneeches what don't got the stars. They they bully them. They're like, little, little Billy Sneech, don't go fucking associating with little Susie Sneech because she doesn't got a star. So, you know, she's she's dirty. Oh, and also... She's, she's filthy. I know you say it's on their stomach. Yeah. You could have put them a little higher on the stomach. <laughs> I mean... Well, that's why I say that they're, like, they're dumpy. It's, you know... Yeah. Okay, yeah, I guess it could kind of crotch words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's in an awkward spot. <laughs> it's ambling taint words. <laughs> and then this fella shows up. His name's Sylvester McMonkey McBean. He calls himself... A fix-it-up chappy. I don't know what that means. Fixed it up. I'm a Sylvester McMonkey McBean. I'm an oil man. I'm a real fix-it-up chappy. We watched this movie like two weeks ago. And I guess I'm still, I'm still thinking about it. He, he shows up and he's like, Sneeches, I'm, I'm a family man. I'm going to give you a, a chance to get into my star on machine. For three dollars. And that's going to put stars on your your weird lower stomach area. And now you'll have stars. And he does. And the Sneeches are like, fuck yeah! And they get the stars. 
And then the speeches that had the stars to begin with are like, well, no, we don't like this. How are we going to know who's fucking special and who's dirty? Who's a filthy second-class Sneetchison? And so Sylvester McMonkey McPlainview is like, I have a solution, Sneetches. It's my star-off machine. There's a whole ocean of stars here. That I can remove. <laughs> I can take off of you. And so that, that, but that one costs... Ten dollars! Fuck you, Sneetches! I drink your stars, Sneetches! And and so they get the stars off, and now they're like, It's good to not have stars. That makes us better now. What a boner. <laughs> and so now they're just all getting all mixed up, and they're like, We don't know who the fuck did or didn't have stars now. This is very confusing. They're all running back and forth now. They, they don't know who started with what or who had what. And now all the Sneetches don't have any fucking money. And McBean's got all their money and he drives away. And the last thing he says is, you can't teach a Sneetch. But it's not true. Because the Sneetches learn that it doesn't matter whether or not you have a star on the area that may or may not be your stomach or something close to your crotch. And it doesn't make you better or worse. And they all get along now. And they're not sneech racist. <laughs> and Dr. Doc- Seuss is like, this was supposed to be about racial discrimination, I think, and also anti-Semitism. The end. Also, of course, like, it's it's super wildly anti-capitalist. <laughs> like, Big Bean shows up and he, you know, he's just like, hey, I can fix this with money. If you buy things, it's gonna make you feel better. But no, they, they just end up broke. Yep. This doesn't ring true of the real world at all. <laughs> no. You know, I'm gonna invent the machine that takes away piercings. <laughs> People are gonna want to get rid of those. They're gonna be cool soon. Trust me. People already got them anti-tattoo machines. Yeah, so I bet this dude who like clearly fucking was not a fan of the capitalist machine, as we will see multiple times, uh, you know, he hated it so much that it bleeds through so aggressively in his picture books for tiny children. I'm sure he'd fucking love Seussland or whatever the fuck it's called in Universal Studios and or the Mazda CX-5 presented by the Lorax. <laughs> But we'll get there. I mean, the saddest thing about Seuss World is that cafeteria. That food's so bad. It's so fucking bad. So bad. And there's just so many options that are so bad. It's the saddest fucking cafeteria. But really, all of Universal, it's bad food. Was the was the Quickie Mart chili dog the best thing? It might have been. <laughs> so because I had uh, Harry Potter food wasn't good. Except the drink. The, the drink the, was good. The butterbeer. Well, yeah, that's because... And all the versions. I mean, the, the frozen ones better. it has enough better. sugar that, like, after three of them, you need to be hooked up to, like, a fucking dialysis machine. I think we had about three of them. Yeah. That's why I can say that. It's from experience. <laughs> so, just alighting on it for a brief moment. Yertle the Turtle, published in 1958. There's, there's really not much going on in Yertle the Turtle, uh, I just, I have to bring it up for two reasons. B- basically, the plot of Yertle the Turtle is there's a turtle named Yertle, and he's he's king of the pond, and he's a dickhead, and he's like, yo, turtles, stack yourselves underneath me to expand my kingdom. And the turtles are like, this fucking hurts, and Yertle is like, fuck you, shut up. 
stack higher. And they, they do, and this goes on for a while, and then one of the turtles named Mac burps, and it, it shakes the stack, and it tosses Yertle off of the, the stack and uh, into a, a mud pile in the water, and then he's king of the mud, and they're all like, fuck you, Yertle. Dr. Seuss stated that the titular character Yertle represented Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> this was all a metaphor for Hitler's rule in Germany and his invasion to various parts of, of Europe. Which is fucking what? <laughs> Here's this picture book. It's about this turtle who's making the other turtles stack. And it's like, here, child, this will teach you to read. And also about the dangers of fascism. <laughs> Gonna tip over. <laughs> Dangerous game of turtle dominoes. The other good part about this book is is the use of the word burp. And and the line is is quote, plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped, and then that's how he, he knocks over the little stack and then and, and topples Turtle Hitler. Uh this was apparently a big problem because according to Dr. Seuss, uh the publishers, it was Random House including the president, the president of Random House, had to meet to decide whether or not they could put burp in the book. Because apparently, quote, nobody had ever burped before on the pages of a children's book. <laughs> quote, I use the word burp. And what I just said, nobody had ever burped before in a kid's book. It took a decision from the president of the publishing house before my vulgar turtle was permitted to do so. I love the idea of, like, a bunch of fucking, like, you know, it's 1958, like, these madmen-looking dudes clustered around a conference table being like, can, can we do, can we put this? I don't know. How is it going to go? Can we put burp in this book for children? How will this, you know, is this acceptable? Like, how's this going to go? Like, there's clouds of cigarette smoke. They've got them stubbed out in ashtrays. They're tearing their hair out. Like, Ted, Ted, I don't know if we can do this, Ted. This burp might be a bridge too far, my friend. Denji. <laughs> this isn't a Chinaman situation. That one was easy. Yeah, that was no problem. We could put that in there. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> fucking Dr. Seuss is just sitting there being like, this book has burps and also this turtle is Hitler. <laughs> Yertle the turtle does not have the same level of like cultural cachet as, you know, like the Grinch stole Christmas and stuff, which is what I'm going to go into next and like the Lorax, but I had to mention that shit. It's very good. So yeah, the Grinch stole Christmas, 1957. I think we know the plot. I don't think I really got going to the plot. Jim Carrey woke up on the wrong side of the bed, kind of grouchy, wandered into the woods, found a tree that had a Christmas tree door on it, went through that, Brought all his Halloween friends with them, ruined Christmas, made Halloween pretty good, sung some songs, banged some chick, the end. Yeah, okay. I don't know why as a child, Nightmare Before Christmas and the Grinch got clumped together into one movie. Yeah, that's pretty weird. So They're, they're Christmas movies for Jews. <laughs> so what's interesting is uh, that apparently the Grinch is Dr. Seuss. Okay. In his story, the Grinch talks about how he's had to, like, put up with the Who's 
doing Christmas and just being a pain in the ass for 53 years. And some some Seussian scholars have noted that Dr. Seuss was 53 when he wrote and published the book. And that this was also, this, this, this was the time when he was dealing with, uh, what's it, the, what, the wife having the health uh, problems? Paralysis. Yeah. Partial paralysis. Yes. And then Dr. Seuss himself says in an article in December 1957 edition of Red Book, quote, I was brushing my teeth on the morning of the 26th of last December when I noticed a very Grinchish countenance in the mirror. It was Seuss! So I wrote about my sour friend, the Grinch, to see if I could rediscover something about Christmas that I had obviously lost. His stepdaughter, Lark Diamond Cates, stated in a speech in 2003, quote, I always thought that the cat was Ted on his good days and the Grinch was Ted on his bad days. Apparently, also, uh, it was noted that Dr. Seuss drove a car with a license plate that read Grinch. So you really don't gotta read super far into it. Pretty surface level. Oh, you know, it's like um, Bob Ross. Sometimes you're the happy trees and sometimes you got to draw the dark clouds. And we're all there sometimes. <laughs> You know, and you can't ignore it. You have to live it and accept it. Yeah, but did Bob Ross, like, drive a car with a license plate said, like, dark cloud? Nah, his license plate said, fuck off. <laughs> Beat me, paint daddy. It was a really big driver. <laughs> I was going to say, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, had a license plate that said, choke me. <laughs> so Dr. Seuss uh, apparently wrote the book, like, really quickly. Uh, he finished it in a few weeks. Biographers... Judith and Neil Morgan wrote, quote, It was the easiest book of his career to write except for its conclusion. According to Dr. Seuss, quote, I got hung up getting the Grinch out of the mess. I got into a situation where I sounded like a second-rate preacher or some biblical truism. Finally, in desperation, without making any statement whatever, I showed the Grinch and the Who's together at the table and made a pun of the Grinch carving the roast beast. I had gone through thousands of religious choices, and then after three months, it came out like that. So he's like, all right, he's, his heart grew three sizes, like, how the fuck am I going to end this shit? Roast beast sounds like roast beef. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. You know, books been adapted into a bunch of shit. There's like the most famous one is the animated TV movie special in 1966, which had Boris Karloff as the, the narrator and the voice of the Grinch. Um, and then uh, Thurl Ravenscroft is the one who's saying the, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Um, you may know that, that name may not sound familiar, but you may know him better as they're Grinch. Oh, <laughs> Toucan Sam. No, it's Tony the Tiger. Pop. Crackle? I hate Snapple. You. Yep, Snapple. Um, Snapple, Apple, Apple, Apple. There's, there's, there's a, a, a prequel TV movie for, that aired in 1977 called the Inch. Halloween is Grinch Night. You see, I We're, made the connection in my mind here yeah. with Nightmare Before Christmas. Christmas and Halloween, there's... They're intricately connected. He, like, kidnaps a child or something. It's, I mean, same thing happens to Peanuts. They do Halloween and Christmas. Well, the Peanuts do... They also do, like, Thanksgiving and, like, Arbor Day and shit. They do all of the things. Fucking Charlie Brown. Um, there's a crossover special <laughs> in 1982. Scooby-Doo investigates the Grinch? <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's called The Grinch Grinches the Cat in the Hat. Which sounds so fucking weird. 
The ultimate showdown. I just need to read the plot to you. <laughs> Please let me read the plot to you. The Grinch wakes up in a good mood one morning until his reflection in the mirror speaks to him and prompts him to repeat the Grinch's oath, reminding him of his evil side, and then he leaves to prove himself. Meanwhile, the cat in the hat goes on a picnic. Uh, the paths cross, the Grinch can't get his car around the cats, and things escalate into a fierce car chase. And the cat unintentionally insults the Grinch by calling him Mr. Greenface. <laughs> the cat returns to his house, but the Grinch follows him there to demonstrate a device he's invented called a vacuum sound sweeper that scrambles all sound within a 50-mile radius, including the cat's voice. <laughs> Back home... The Grinch decides to upgrade the sweeper into a dark house, an anti-lighthouse that spreads beams of darkness. The cat becomes upset with the Grinch's hijinks and has a psychiatric session with him in a thought bubble to find out what makes him so uh, mean-spirited. He gets nowhere with the imaginary Grinch, though he is briefly triggered by the memory of his deceased mother. <laughs> so he decides to go over and have a talk with him. The Grinch makes it dark so that the cat can't see where he's going and he crashes his car when he passes a dead end sign. <laughs> and then they get into like a fucking car chase and then the cat chases him to a restaurant and he, he leads everyone in a song to remind the Grinch of all the love he received from his dead mother to implore him to change his ways and be a better person. Before the Grinch can get to the dark house to scramble it, he collapses in grief over the memory of his mother, whose spirit comforts him and dismantles the dark house. <laughs> what? Makes sense. It speaks to me. The Grinch Grinches Cat in the Hat. Or alternatively, the alternate title was The Cat in the Hat Gets Grinched. <laughs> the yeah. Cat in the Hat Done Got Grinched. Next is Horton Hears a Who, which was 1954. So, Horton Hears a Who is the original story of those smug little fucks what celebrate Christmas and annoy the Grinch. And they live on a flower. So, Horton, who's the elephant, was splashed around in a pool and he hears a small little speck of dust talking to him. And he figures that there's a person who lives on the, the speck and he puts it on the clover. So I guess they don't live on a flower. They live on the speck and he puts it on a flower and he's like, I'm going to protect it. And he discovers that the, the speck is a little planet and that's where Whoville is. And the mayor of Whoville is like, please God protect us. How have we even managed to survive this long? Oh God, oh Jesus. <laughs> and he does. And he says, you know, I'm gonna do it because a person's a person. No matter how small. This is a message that's definitely not going to get co-opted by anyone. So Horton spends the whole book trying to convince everybody in the jungle that the person is a person no matter how small and should be treated equally. And he keeps trying to protect the little speck. And even though he's like ridiculed and harassed by all the other animals because they're like, we can't see or hear this thing. We think you're crazy. Horton can because he's got his big ass elephant ears. That's, that's why he can. Um, and so they all try to, like, destroy the, the little flower to teach him a lesson, I guess. <laughs> Which is pretty fucked up. And uh, these monkeys steal it and they give it to Vlad Vladikolov, the evil eagle. <laughs> who 
flies the, the flower away for, for Horton to chase him, and he drops in the middle of a field of flowers that look exactly like it that stretches for hundreds of miles. <laughs> Which, again, damn, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Horton does eventually find it, though. And the mayor's like, we, we're fucked up from that fall, though. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Then, then it gets real fucked up, because then a kangaroo and, and some monkeys, they catch him. And they tie Horton up and they're like, we're gonna burn, we're gonna burn this. We're gonna burn the flower. This is what you get for having ideas? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure where this is coming from. And so Horton's like, yo, you gotta make as much noise as you can and prove that you exist. So everyone in Whoville just fucking screams. <laughs> but not everyone. There's some little Whoville person named Jojo who's playing with a yo-yo instead of screaming. And Mayor of Whoville's like, hey, fucking yell, you little asshole, we're gonna die. And and so Jojo shouts out, yop. They go, yop. Yop. And that's that's enough. That that like bursts through like the, the bubble. And so then everybody can now hear the Who's and they're like, oh. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, Horton, we're so sorry. <laughs> oh, no. And, yeah, that's, that's Horton here's a who. And if you're like, wow, that's kind of dark, Dr. Seuss, there's a reason for that. So it's not as many people have mistakenly figured or, or otherwise actively tried to spin an anti-abortion allegory. In fact, Dr. Seuss got pretty pissy about that one. He had to threaten to sue an anti-abortion group to get them to stop using a person's a person no matter how small and, like, they're stationary and shit. He was willing to let people fuck his name up and just, you know, stop fighting that fight, but... Like, any good political cartoonist, he likes to keep his symbolism clearly labeled, and this this wasn't, like, any pro-life shit. He didn't want people putting words in his mouth. Uh, in fact, his widow, uh, Audrey, continued to hammer home after his death to the point of actively contributing to Planned Parenthood. Presumably while simultaneously flipping everyone the bird. So, what is it about? As I have alluded to, it's about old Teddy feeling real bad about being so fucking racist against Japanese Americans specifically, and also just Japanese people in general. So, he supported the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And on the issue of the Japanese in general, he is quoted at the time as saying, quote, But right now... When, and here he says the slur for Japanese people, uh, are planting their hatchets in our skulls, it seems like a hell of a time for us to smile and warble brothers. It is a rather flabby battle cry. If we want to win, we've got to kill. And repeats the slur for Japanese people again. So whether it depresses John Haynes Holmes or not, we can get palsy-walsy afterward with those that are left. Fuck, dude! Damn, that's, uh, yeah. Dr. Seuss said that. Yeah. It's, uh, not good. <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. And afterwards, he was like, yeah, I guess that's pretty fucked up. I, I wrote a lot of really racist political cartoons, and I said some really horrible shit like that. I guess I feel kind of bad about it. So... The main theme, that a person's a person no matter how small, was uh, apparently his reaction to a visit to Japan 
where the, the importance of the individual was an exciting new concept, is a good quote here, apparently. Uh, and so... He was making fun of their height? <laughs> it, it, he used this book, quote, as an allegory for the American post-war occupation of the country. His comparison of the Who's and the Japanese was a way for him to express his willingness for companionship. He, quote, strived to relay the message that the Japanese should be valued equally, especially in a stressful post-war era, and he dedicated the book to a Japanese friend. So I guess it's just kind of like, hey, the little guys, we'll protect you. Which is still, it's still not great. It still has this weird kind of American superiority to it. Like, it's still not fantastic. So yeah, that's, it's, it's something. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna head back to the racism thing later, but yeah, Horton Hears a Who. The legacy of Dr. Seuss's weird internalized anti-Japanese racism. But first, The Lorax, 1971. So, a young boy without a name living in his horrible polluted land visits a isolated weirdo called the Onceler on the street of the lifted Lorax. And he, uh, he gives the Onceler 15 cents, a nail, and the shell of the great-great-great-grandfather snail. And says, tell me the story of how the Lorax was lifted. <laughs> how did the Lorax get lifted? Strong arms. Yep. <laughs> yeah, man, you ever think about how the Lorax looks a lot like Torborn in Overwatch? Might be the same guy. No, they, not really. Yeah, Lorax is always running around. <laughs> My turret! <laughs> you couldn't even get that out. That joke was so stupid. <laughs> So, my tree! The Onceler... The uh, tree! I, my tree! Thank God. Please stop. The Onceler tells the boy that he's like, I used to live in this, this beautiful valley, and there's a forest of truffle truffle trees, I don't know, and animals, and it was great, and I cut I cut down this tree, and I knit a thneed. And thneeds are great. It's like a clothing thing, it's like a scarf. Like an infinity scarf, kind of. You could do fucking whatever with it. Needs are, are just the best. And then the Lorax popped out, and he's like, I speak for the trees. Why'd, why'd you cut down that, that truffle tree, dickhead? And that that need is, is stupid, and you're stupid. And then the, someone walks by, and they're like, Oh, fuck yeah! A, a need, and they bought it for $3.98. Which would be... $25 in today money. Whoa. And the Onceler was like, fuck you, Lorax. I'm gonna cut down all these trees and sell me some thneeds. I'm a thneed man, you see. <laughs> I make my living selling thneeds. And then the Onceler's little shop becomes a big old factory and he brings in his relatives and, you know, it, it, it goes from there. And the Lorax is like, no, you're fuck you're ruining the environment and the onceler's like yeah bitch stop me he comes out, i'm gonna keep biggering my business and the lorax is like that's not a word i'm bigger your milkshake this is really the one that should have been there will be blood <laughs> and then the onceler beats the lorax to death with a bowling pin <laughs> vicious 
Uh, and then and then they, they chop down all the trees and shit. But then they're out of materials, and so the factory shuts down. And then the Onesler's relatives abandon him because there's like there's no fucking money here. Capitalism. <laughs> and then Lorax is like, well, look what you did here. And then he lifts himself into the air by the seat of his pants. I don't know what that means. <laughs> He just grabs his own ass and flies away. Yeah. Gives himself a wedgie that picks him up and as, ships him off. As one does. And he leaves behind this, this shitty polluted land with just a pile of rocks that spell out a single word. Do you know what that word is? Help. No. Help. No. That's that's, that's just the same word, but you said it funny. My turret. <laughs> yeah, it's the mustache that sells it. You know, they're short. I'm gonna give you one. And kind of orange. I'm gonna give you one more. Burp. <laughs> Unless. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, Onesler sits in exile for years, wondering what the fuck that means. And now in the present, we also, we never see the Onesler uh, during this whole story that he's telling this kid. We just see his arms. He just got these these big old spindly arms where he's got green gloves on. That's all we ever see of him. And he just sort of gesticulates. He realizes sort of out loud. He says, unless, quote, unless uh, someone you, or fuck me. He says, fuck me. Um, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And he gives the boy the last tru- truffle tree seed and is like, you better grow some fucking trees, dude, or we're fucked. <laughs> and yeah, that's the story. It's pretty grim. The moral is pretty clear. Capitalism and destruction of the environment, bad. And activism, good. Caring about things, good. This was apparently one of Dr. Seuss's personal favorites of his books. And he says, quote, The Lorax came out of me being angry. In the Lorax, I was out to attack what I think are evil things and let the chips fall where they might. So I'm sure he'd be psyched as hell about the fucking 2012 adaptation. Who boy. Um, there was the 1972 TV special, so that came out just a year after the story. It won awards and shit. It's it's also pretty grim. But yeah, in 2012, they did the CGI animated one. You know, the one where the biggest marketing tie-in was for a Mazda SUV. He, he speaks for the 25 miles per gallon highway and four-wheel drive. There you go. It's in the book. And people were like, uh, feel sort of completely fucking antithetical to the message of the Lorax. In response, Stephanie Serber, Sperber, uh, president of Universal Partnerships and Licensing said, quote, We will animate the Lorax exhuming Dr. Seuss's corpse and skull-fucking it in the backseat of a Mazda CX-5 if they give us enough money to justify it. Okay, fine. What she actually said was that Universal chose to partner with the Mond- Mazda blah 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 because it's a really good choice for consumers to make who may not have the luxury or the money to buy electric or buy hybrid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They might have sold planes to Al Gore that he flies around all the time. You love nature, burn some fuel. I mean, all fuel is is just dead dinosaurs. I mean, they ain't using those bodies no more. In total, Illumination Entertainment struck more than 70 different product deals for the film. Capitalism. My product! (laughs) 
And so the movie stars Zac Efron and Taylor Swift and Danny DeVito as the Lorax. And finally, Ed Helms as the Onesler, who instead of just being, like, arms, was a skinny, goofy, Paul Dano-looking motherfucker in a fedora who played the guitar. And Tumblr decided that they really, really wanted to fuck him. Tumblr wanted to fuck him so bad. And there were no good characters in the movie to pair him off with, because, shocker, that was not the intent of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. And the, the thing du jour was making real fa uh, horny fan art of the Onesler, and the, the post-need manufacturing evil industrialist capitalist Onesler who wears a big green suit and sings a villain song. So they made him fuck himself. <laughs> been on the internet a very long time, and the majority of which has been mostly terrible. And so that brings us to the controversy. Dun dun dun. So Dr. Seuss Enterprises is the organization that owns the rights to the books, the films, the TV shows, the, the all of the everything announced on March 2nd of 2021 that it will stop publishing and licensing six books. Those are, and to think that I saw Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, McGilligot's Pool, On Beyond the Zebra, a uh, scrambled egg super and the cat's quizzer. According to the organization, the books, quote, portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong and are no longer being published due to racist and insensitive imagery. Now, I only ever even heard of like two of these to, to fucking begin with. Like, who the fuck is out there crying over the loss of like the cat's quizzer? People who love freedom of speech can't cancel books. Well, okay, but that's the thing. They're just, they're not saying they're going out to, like, find every copy and set it on fire. Just they're not making more of them. Yet. <laughs> so the things, that, here's, here are the things that are in them. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, it has all the things that the kid sees. One of them's like a Chinaman eating rice. And also the drawing is pretty racist. Now, the it's one not that, great. Something with that one specifically. They changed the book like 30 years ago. Yeah. And so like they had edited it already. Then that's kind of weird. And now they're weird. just <laughs> completely taking, or they're taking the book off the show. If I Ran the Zoo is kind of the same thing, except that there's more of them and the pictures are worse. Miguelica's Pool and On Beyond Zebra and Scrambled Egg Super are all kind of the same where they make reference to uh, indigenous like Inuit people where they say like uh, Eskimo, I think, which I don't think we are supposed to say anymore. And then the Cat's Quizzer or the Cat's Quizzler, whichever one that is. I don't know if it's Quizzer or Quizzler because I wrote it down in two different ways. That one's, that one's not good. Um... So it's just like bullshit random questions or it's like the cat in the hat is asking you weird questions. Haha. <laughs> the reason that this book is getting withdrawn, it's an illustration of a, uh, quote, yellow figure in a, a coolie hat. I don't know what, what that is, but uh, the question is, how old do you have to be to be a Japanese? Which that's not awesome. No. No. Yeah, see, you're like sitting there and you're like, no, that's not good. <laughs> what the fuck is that? That's not anything. And so now you have people being like, oh, no, it's, oh, we're, we're canceling him. Dr. Seuss is canceled now. Here's the thing. Dr. Seuss is not a victim of fucking cancel culture. Because for one thing, it's not physically possible to cancel a dude when he's been dead for 30 years. I don't think you can cancel someone who, who is long dead. 
They've canceled Thomas Jefferson. No, see, that's the thing. I don't think you could cancel Thomas. I think you could cancel Thomas Jefferson any more than you could cancel Dr. Seuss. The man is dead. God canceled him. Yeah, pretty much. You can't, God canceled him already. <laughs> so fucking stupid. But, you know, you try to tell him that to fucking Republicans who basically, I don't know, they've taken him and they're like, yes, come to us. And now you've got like Gina Carano and the, the cat in the hat, like dying on the cross for mankind's sins. I don't know. They're oppressed together now. Dr. Seuss is subversive now because liberals don't like him. And now you cue a bunch of really weird and awkward pictures of fucking right-wing politicians posing with Dr. Seuss books snatched from their kids' rooms looking like those dudes who pose with anime samurai swords that they bought from a catalog they got in the mail. Like, this is my weapon in the fight against liberal oppression. It's called Fox in Socks. But this isn't the first time Republicans have co-opted the good doctor for their own ends. In 2013, Senator Ted Cruz read Green Eggs and Ham on the floor of the United States Senate during his filibuster over the funding of Obamacare. Because reasons. I don't know why the fuck Ted Cruz does anything. He was quoted during his dipshit filibuster as saying, When Americans tried it, they discovered they did not like Green Eggs and Ham. And they did not like Obamacare either. He never arrived. He got it. Cruz said that while reading from the famous Dr. Seuss tale, quote, they did not like Obamacare in a box with a fox in a house or with a mouse. It is not working. So, I mean, this was probably the deepest metaphor he'd ever encountered in a book and it left quite the fucking impression on him. As it should. Except he couldn't even get it right. Like, he was so horny to incorporate this book for babies into his speech to try to kill Obamacare that he literally fucked up the moral as bad as he possibly could because, as Democratic senator and shambling animated corpse Chuck Schumer helpfully pointed out, quote, the moral of that story is to try things you may not like. If he tasted green eggs and ham, he may actually like them. <laughs> American politics is the dumbest fucking thing on earth, and I never know whether to laugh or cry. I just wanted to share that, that fun nugget of political history and, and Ted Cruz doing what he does best, being God's most hilarious mistake. Ah, oh, Jesus fucking, that gets us to the part of the show that we always get to, and that is ARJ. Sup? Are the Dr. Seuss books good? Yeah, they're good. Ted Cruz agrees. Ted Cruz stamp of approval. That's good enough for me. Ted Cruz doesn't know how to, Ted Cruz apparently doesn't know how to analyze fucking Dr. Seuss. Hey Megan. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Seuss. Yeah. If you had one word to spell out with rocks, what would it be? What? Balls. There you go. I'm RJ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Knee-jerk response here is the same answer I had in our, our little Golden Book episode, which is these picture books teach small children to read, so, like, yeah, they're, they're fucking fine. Obviously, we're not going to sit here and judge them on the same metric as, like, The Great Gatsby or Fahrenheit 451. Better than those. I I'm sure there are plenty of shitty picture books to, to teach chill small children to read out there, but then also, conversely, there are ones that... 
don't contain a manifestation of the author's guilt about being a racist and coming to terms with his previous support of Japanese internment camps in America, unless I've severely misinterpreted Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> ah, that's the caterpillar, baby. <laughs> I think it's important. It eats like... its guilt. <laughs> then it becomes a butterfly. Hit your finger. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important, especially considering how often this is like a thing with the show. And, and more and more how people seem to be, like, engaging with media lately, which makes me sound really fucking old, is that there's a distinct difference between, like, do we think Dr. Seuss's books are good and do we think, like, Dr. Seuss is good? Because I think we get muddled on shit like that, too. And, like, you know, this whole point of, like, you were talking about, about like, freedom of speech and you're falling asleep. You don't care. You could say something meaningful, but no. I already did. Alright, I guess we don't have anything to fucking say about freedom of speech or, or thoughts about that or anything, so I don't know. Dick, dick, balls, fart. That'll about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. We got three more to go. The usual stuff I would say probably doesn't really matter here anymore. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. The next episode will be on April 8th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. I tried to write and rewrite this a lot of times. Again, then a car came anyway. So. Tried to write and rewrite this a lot of times trying to make it funny. Because I the cats are just out and Zach never going to be able to fucking get this out. It's oh. <laughs> Oh, are they cuddling? I don't know. I don't know if that's a if that's a consensual cuddle or not. Honestly.